and change the conversation. Uh, I had a substitute teacher back in elementary school. Her name was Mrs. Johnston. Uh, I am, for whatever reason, I was told that uh, I was particularly difficult that particular day that we had Mrs. Johnston there in my class. Um, by the time the day was over, I can assure you that both Mrs. Johnston and I had had our ample fill of, of one another uh, there. Uh, but I was, much to my relief, I figured, well, I mean, I knew that was her only day, or maybe it was her last day, if it was a spring of days, I don't remember, but it was her, her last day. And so my assumption was, ah, fantastic, I will never see this woman again. And, uh, well, two days later, Sunday morning, far still Presbyterian Church, uh, I'm introduced to two kids that uh, are visiting our, our church, and uh, they're going to be in my class, the brother and sister, Chris and Carol Johnston. I thought to myself, well, that name sounds familiar. And then the next introduction that my parents make to me, lo and behold, are to Mr. and Mrs. Johnston. She just looked at me knowingly, smiled, and I behaved. Um, knowing who you're talking to um, has a way of changing the course of a conversation, how you relate to somebody. Um, prayer, prayer is something of a conversation, a conversation with God. Do we know who we're talking to? Do we know who we're actually praying to, engaging in this conversation with? Do we, do we really know who he is? If you have your Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, uh, this is um, the first of the four Gospels that we have. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the first of the books of the New Testament. Uh, we are in the sixth chapter of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, roughly roughly halfway through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we are uh, moving into what is oftentimes referred to as the Lord's Prayer. Uh, we're going to look at just the very beginning of, of that prayer. Uh, but I will read uh, the prayer in its entirety, verses 9 through 13, though we're only really camping out to this morning in one verse, verse 9. Uh, do we know? Do we know who he really is? Hear now the word of God. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are right there with the disciples when they came to you and said, Lord, teach us to pray. Um, we, we get that. We really do. It's, I suppose, in one sense surprising that they would have been asking you that because they had spent so much time with you. But at the same time, uh, we, we understand because it's, it's just uh, confusing in some ways. That which ought to be the most natural thing in the world, at times uh, in our hearts and minds, gets very complicated and confusing and convoluted. And we ask that you would make it not so. Uh, we ask you to help us hear. You very obviously want us to know, and certainly you and your love for us are not making it complicated and confusing. Uh, you want to clarify 
and and um, help us see and understand. So we pray that you would do that now. In your name we pray, uh, we ask. Amen. Well, as we have been uh, saying in the last few weeks in this portion here in, in Matthew 6, what Jesus is doing here at this point in the Sermon on the Mount is he is addressing the three basic religious activities. Actually, it weren't, aren't just the, the case for Judaism. Actually, when you look at world religions in general, you see that these are three basic religious activities. But, of course, he's addressing a Jewish audience, and this would be almsgiving and prayer and fasting. And he is addressing these three things and giving uh, teaching pertaining to those three and also some warnings, some clarifiers as to what the right and wrong way is to, to approach this. And uh, regarding prayer, that's where we are right now. Where we were last week, where we are this week, and where we will be for the next two weeks even after this uh, on prayer, he makes it very clear that he, that, that, that he is not interested in any way at all, prayer in any, is not to be in any way at all, a hypocritical performance or a manipulative posturing on our part, uh, but rather it is to be from the heart. In fact, really you could make a simple case, that, and a, and a right case, that uh, the heart of prayer is prayer of the heart. The heart of prayer is prayer of the heart, which then takes us to what is oftentimes referred to as the Lord's Prayer here in verses 9 through 13. I just want to say a few quick things about that before we move into it. And there would be three, actually. So one would be, first, it's not actually the Lord's Prayer. It's the disciples' prayer. The, the, the disciples' prayer given to the disciples by the Lord himself. Jesus is not actually has no need to pray this because he doesn't need to confess his sins. And that comes later on in the prayer. But anyway, so this is the Lord's Prayer given to his disciples. Um, secondly, this is not meant to serve as a liturgical form set in concrete, rather it is given as a model prayer to guide us in our own. Jesus prays in other ways too. And we have the Psalms as well. So it's meant to, to as a model, as, as a guide, something for us uh, as we are praying. And we'll talk about that over the coming weeks. And then the third thing is the transition. The transition that you see that Jesus makes here from verses, um, well, what shall we say, verses 6 through 8 to then verses 9 and following, literally he says, you then. You then. There's a contrast, a very clear contrast that he's trying to make. This is how, paraphrasing, this is how they pray, not so with you. You are to pray like this. And then comes the model, then comes the guide. Uh, this introduction, these words here that we see in the, just the very first part of verse 9, um, our Father in heaven, you might think, well, that's just an introduction. Isn't, can't we just kind of move on past that? I would say no. No. It may, it may be very well-known, maybe very just assumed words in your part when you think of what does the Lord's Prayer say, but rather there is so much here that we need to, to pay attention to. Because as I alluded to earlier, knowing uh, who we're praying to transforms how we pray and what we pray. Do you see that? Knowing who we're praying to completely changes and transforms what we're praying and how we're praying. I'll put it another way. Jesus calls us to pray. No question about that here, here in this, this passage over the... What he's saying regarding the warnings, but he's saying, he, again, I said this last week, he's not, at no point does he say, 
well, you know, if you feel like it, give to the poor. If you feel like it, fast. If you feel like it, pray. No, he's assuming that we are. It's the right thing, the proper thing for his followers to be doing. He says, when you pray, when you pray. He's calling us to pray, but we are to pray to whom? To our Heavenly Father. And we think about that, what he's saying who it is that we are praying to that, that tells us so much about prayer in and of itself. So, so very, very, very much. And I just want to walk you through these three very simple but profound things when it comes to understanding the dynamics of Christian prayer. First, prayer is intended to be corporate. There's a corporate element to it. And the second thing is it's powerful. It's transcendent. And the third thing is it's personal. It's personal. It's relational. Let's look at these in turn. So first, prayer is corporate. You'll note here um, the first person pronoun is uh, plural, our. He doesn't say, my Father in heaven. He says, our Father. Our Father in heaven. There is a corporate aspect to Christian prayer. Even, even as we pray silently, yes, of course, he does Yes, but prayer is not meant, intended to be ultimately private. Uh, not ultimately completely so. Yes, of course, God is in thankfully, oh so thankfully, personally concerned with us, every one of us as individuals, our hurts, our burdens, our needs, our joys, the things that, that make our hearts heavy, the things that make our hearts light. Yes, he is absolutely personally concerned for us, but he is not indulgent. He is not like a permissive parent who's just going to let us go to seed, let us be spoiled, because prayer ultimately is not all about us. It's not private. There is a corporate element. There is a familial element. I'll put it that way. You see, when you become a Christian, it's not just that your relationship with God changes and he now becomes your father, though that's true. All other Christians on the face of the world and back and forward in time are now your siblings. You're brought into a family. You have brothers and sisters. There are these family ties that are forged, bonds that are forged when you come to Christ. And so with those family ties, therein there ought to be these family concerns. That's why Paul says in Romans, we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. It's not just a sentimental thing. He's saying, this is your family. You have a shared life together. These family ties, they're in form, these family concerns. So, Jesus says, our Father, showing us that we are a family united together in Christ, there is a corporate element to prayer. Our ties to one another in Christ demand concern for one another expressed in prayer. Our ties to one another in Christ demand concern for one another expressed in prayer. Now ask yourself now, if a transcript was being kept of your prayers, what's the balance there? Is there any corporate, familial aspect to that? Do you understand the burdens and the joys that you have a part in? 
your brothers and sisters in this family and around the world as well. Our, our the shared relationship demands that we understand the shared burdens as well. Um, sometimes all you can do is pray. But at all times, the first thing you should do is pray for each other, for one another. There is this corporate element here. Jesus calls us to pray to our Father in heaven. Well, that's not all he says, of course. There's a second element here. Prayer is powerful. He says you're to pray to your Father in heaven. There's a powerful element here. There's a transcendent element here. Now, obviously, this is not a statement about geography or cosmology. Uh, this is not a statement about God's heavens, that being where God is. Yuri Gagarin was just ridiculous in what he said. You know, I didn't see. He was the first man to go into space. And he was the, the Russian cosmonaut and as part of the propaganda. Yuri Gagarin reported back, well, I didn't see God there. That's not the point. It's ridiculous. What a straw man thing. What a silly thing for him to say. This is not about God's heavens, the, the stars and the sky and the sun. This is about God's throne. This is not about where God is. This is about who God is. God is the sovereign one. This is about his rule. This is about his reign. This is an understanding of his wisdom. Um, nothing is beyond his sight. Nothing is past his purview or his, his, his view. His, he is truly, as the theologians say, he is omniscient. He knows all things well. No one is going to surprise him. There's a lot going on in heaven. Surprise is not one of them. God is all wise. Speaks to his wisdom, our God, our Father in heaven, but not just that, but of his power. He knows all things and he does all things well. He is, he cannot be informed of anything, surprised by anything, nor can he ultimately be opposed by anything. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. That's the other word you can throw into all of this. He is the creator of all, the sustainer of all. One day the redeemer of all. So we pray to our Father in heaven so we understand he's the king. Which speaks to the fact that there is a powerful element to prayer. What, what, what then, how does that impact our own prayer lives? Well, I mean, if we have even the glimmer of a glimpse, I mean, just a glimmer of a glimpse, of his wisdom and his power that ought to lend itself towards a sense of expectancy when we pray. Because who are we praying to? Our Father in heaven. Put it this way. Our prayers are not earthbound. The escape velocity from planet Earth I'm not making this up, is 25,000 miles per hour. That's the calculation that NASA has to dial in for a rocket to escape the pull of Earth's gravity. Your prayers, our prayers, reach escape velocity. They are not Earth-bound. They're going somewhere. 
There's someone listening. They're not just words. It's not just sound. There's a transcendent element here. Because our Father in heaven hears. But it's not just that. And perhaps this is the most important thing. He is our Father in heaven, but he is our Father in heaven. So there is this corporate element, there is this powerful element, but there is also this personal element. God is not abstract. He is not an idea. He is not a theory. He is not the great other. He is not even a force. Star Wars, it's the modern myth of our time. And as such, there's, so, there's a lot of great things there. Just like the old myths, as it's borrowing and tapping into the ancient myths of, of sto- heroes, stories of heroism, and tales of sacrifice, and uh, the, the reality and the, the, the battle between good and evil and the temptation and the dangers of giving into the temptation towards power and control. It's all there. And it's good. Star Wars has great lessons, but its theology is a little off because God is no force. He is the Lord. He is the Lord. He is our Father. And to speak of him as a force is to borrow far more from Eastern myth and religion than it is from biblical truth. He is our Father. Now, what, what, what might that? What does that mean, biblically speaking? Well, keep your. If you want to keep your thumb here in Matthew six, let's go to Psalm one hundred three. Psalm one hundred three. If you're trying to find the Psalms, it's basically right in the middle of your Bible. Let the binding fall open, and you'll probably that's where you'll land most likely. Psalm one hundred three. Uh, oh my goodness, if we had more time, just to read the entirety of it, but I just, I'm going to read verses uh, 6 through 14. Psalm 103, verses 6 through 14. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows us. He knows you. Do do you hear what the psalmist is saying? He knows your frame. He knows how you've been made. He made you, so he knows you. He knows our needs. And so he provides in ways that we, we don't have a glimpse of a grasp of. And he protects. Oh, the things that he has kept you from. You don't even know. You don't even know. But he knows. He knows your. He knows our needs. He knows our frailties. He knows mine. He knows your our, our sinful tendencies, the bentness, the the crookedness, the 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 irascible bentness 
of our hearts. He knows it. And he responds with this paternal compassion. Now Jesus then says, that kind of father is who you're praying to. Now this was revolutionary, what he was saying in his day. Um, it was common, I mean obviously you see it there right there in Psalm 103, it was common to refer to God as like a father, but it was extraordinarily rare to address God as father. Do you see the distinction there? It was common to think of him like, of one of many metaphors as being like a father, like this, like like also like a father. But but to, to say father was very rare. But for Jesus, it was routine. It was regular. It was just it was his way to use the, the Aramaic. Would have been likely the way the word that he would have used here. This is in the Greek. Matthew is giving us in the Greek. But when Jesus actually said it, it was in the Aramaic. So he would have said Abba which is, is, is a term of endearment and of loving affection that any of us would say towards our father, the kind of word that a small child would say towards their own father, Abba, Abba. And that's how Jesus is saying that we should come and think of and speak to our own heavenly father. As revolutionary as an idea as it was then, maybe even somewhat controversial, frankly, to the degree that we will really understand who God is as our Heavenly Father, that will revolutionize our lives. And I don't just mean our prayer lives. I mean, that will be an outflow. But our lives themselves, to the degree that we are grasping that. His compassion, as expressed there in Psalm 103, that is our confidence. His compassion is our confidence I mean, we, we ask ourselves, you know, intellectually, well, you know, is, does he hear me when I pray? Well, yes, he does. Absolutely. Here's a follow-up question. Why does he hear us when he pray, when we pray? You ever think about that? Why does he hear you when you pray? It has absolutely nothing to do with how short or long or how uh, simple or how complicated or, or how expansive, or how well thought out, or, or technologically, or excuse me, theologically precise, our prayers may be. It has nothing to do with any of, of that. It has to do with this: that He loves us, and that's why He hears. In fact, that's the only reason that He hears. It's the only reason that He hears us is because He loves us, and that's enough. In fact, that's plenty enough. In fact, that's, that's a guarantee that he hears us, is the fact that he loves us. And so there is this personal element. Jesus calls us again to pray to our Father. Um, I mentioned last week uh, Paul Miller's book, uh, Life of Prayer. I'm reading that in another book right now, The Heart of Prayer, by Jerome Bars. Um, and there's a wonderful little story that Jerem tells towards the beginning of that book. I'm going to read it to you. One of my daughters-in-law is French, and her children call me Pappy, the French word for grandfather. I remember that when one of them was three, I would sometimes answer the phone to this beloved little voice. Pappy, I love you. I want you to come and have dinner with us. I would say, yes, thank you. Mammy and I will come. I love you too. My grandson would say these few words and then put the phone down. I was delighted, of course. He did not need to say anything else. His brief words, his simple and straightforward expression of love, his request, these were enough 
for me. Now, I was in something of a weird mood when I read this. And so I thought to myself, oh, this is great. So I can just call Jerem Bars at any time, and he'll just drop whatever he's doing and come have dinner with me. That's obviously not what Jerem's point is in the story. I mean, you need to understand something about who Jerem Bars is. I mean, f first of all, he, he served for years with Francis Schaeffer at Labrie. Then he has served in the decades since as the director of the Schaeffer Institute and a professor at Covenant Seminary. He's written, all, all, I mean, he, he, he written prolifically. He's a, he's a speaker, a conference speaker all over the world. On top of that, it's been 20 years this spring since I was last his student. So, yeah, I can call him. And he might come. Well, I probably will get through to his secretary first, and then they'll probably take months at best. You see, he'll drop anything to his grandson, but not me. Well, that's fine. That's the way it ought to be. What does this have to do with prayer? It has everything to do with prayer. Because we can come to our Heavenly Father at any time with anything. At any time with anything. And it doesn't matter how sophisticated it is. We can come like a, like a, like a four-year-old. And just say what's on our hearts. Remember what I said earlier, the heart of prayer? The heart of prayer is prayer of the heart, knowing, let me add this, knowing, encouraged, and emboldened by the fact that we have the heart of God. His heart for us. His heart beats for us. And so he delights to hear from us and to hear our hearts. Let's pray now. Lord, again, uh, we are right with the disciples, and they're asking for you to teach them to pray. And so you do. You still do. Uh, our Father in heaven, oh, would you help us to come with this corporate understanding and not so selfish you help us to come with this understanding of, of, of the power of prayer and not just words? The, the, the personal aspect to it is not, it's not theoretical, but we're coming to you, our Heavenly Father, with all of your compassion. May all of that be a balm to our souls. And Lord, anyone here for whom the news that you are a father, that that becomes a hindrance because of their own father? Uh, we ask that you'd help them to see that the very instinctive sense they have that something is wrong tells them that you are the ideal father, everything that their father ought to have been. So may that drive us all, no matter what our earthly fathers were ever like, and that drive us all towards you with great desire and longing to pour out our hearts. Oh, that we would know more of who we're praying to, that then what we pray and how we pray would be shaped rightly. So help us know. Help us know who you are more. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, we are now uh, going to continue in our time of worship here in the celebration of the supper. I want to take you back to Psalm 103 for just a minute. Um, you don't have to turn there. You can if you like. But um, just thinking about something here. How can this be? For instance, verses 9 and, and 10, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. How can that be? 
How can that be that he would deal with us in this way? Or verse, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us? How, how can that be? Well, actually the answer is, like, verse 8, he's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Or, or you can look at verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. That's how it can be. It's how he can be so loving and so just at the same time. And we see that most especially in the finished work of Jesus. That's how all that comes together ultimately. I think it was John Calvin who said that the cross, the cross is where mercy and justice kiss. Where you see the mercy of God and the love of God kiss. It's the plan of the Father to make us his children was accomplished by the redeeming work of the Son and is continually being applied by the transformative work of His Spirit. And that's why we're here. The work of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. To celebrate here this supper, this sacrament together, is oftentimes referred to as a sign, a meaning, something that, that, our, that our minds can grapple with. Also, as a, as a seal, something for our hearts to be reassured with. Um, so going something along these lines, just as surely as you will take that bread and break it and, and tear it in with your teeth, so too was his body broken and torn for you. Just as surely as you will take that cup and pour it, his blood was poured out, spilled, for you, just as surely, one as the other, this connection here. And Paul, this is what he's writing about here in 1 Corinthians 11 to assure us and remind us of all these beautiful things, starting in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So let me encourage you here as we are about to pass out first the bread and, and then the cup. If you're not uh, a Christian, if you're not a follower of Christ, not his disciple, if you couldn't really say yay and amen, so to speak, to that creed that we were reciting just a little while ago, then I would say that you're not ready yet to take of the supper. That just makes sense, right? I mean, given what it is meant to be, you're not ready yet to do that. But then I would implore you, then not only to let it go by, but to ask yourself this question. What's getting in the way? What's, what are the issues getting in the way of my actually being a Christian? Becoming his disciple, becoming his follower. If you're a Christian here this morning and you know within your heart of hearts that you are living in, in willful rebellion against him, and, and, and Paul's alluding to that here so often it comes out in our 
horizontal relationships one to another, if, if you know that to be where you are, then again, you also need to let the, the, the bread and the cup go by. But I would say not this question. Let this question begin to percolate. What is it that I love so much that I'm willing to hold to and keep my Savior at bay? What is it that I love more than Him? Deal with that. Repent of that. And take of this next time we do this together. And if, my friend, uh, if you're a, a follower of His, a disciple of His, if you, as I was reading earlier from Matthew 11, know your weariness and have found in Him to be your rest, then take. Know that He is saying to you this morning, Take and eat. Take and drink. Find in me your soul's strength. The, the, the food and drink for your spiritual weariness. As he says in the Gospel of John, abide in me. Abide in me. Find your life in me. My, his promise to you this morning is, he will remind you and refresh you in that by His grace. And we are first going to hand out the bread. Take that as you're ready. Uh, we would ask that you hold the cup. We're going to do that together uh, as, well, as a family. As a family. Let me pray. Uh, Father, uh, thank you for uh, your knowing our frame, knowing us so well, knowing that we need these regular reminders and refreshers in the gospel uh, for it to be proclaimed, the good news to be proclaimed, but also to be shown and, and felt and even tasted. Such is our need and such is how well you know our need that you have given us this sacrament. And so we ask that you would take and do with it what you intended and strengthen our souls, we pray. Amen.